The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop downloading sax cymbals and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 427, with guest Hesferandes, recorded live Monday, March 9th, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who gets rid of pesky compiler errors by turning off error reporting, Carl Franklin! Hey, Richard. Howdy, sir. How are you? Doing okay. Doing all right. It's, uh... It began snowing again here. Can you believe it? We get we're getting snow in March. Hey, we did too, and we're on opposite coasts. What's up with that? I, you know, again, I say, where is Al Gore? What nice. happened to global warming? We're we use got, some global warming right now. We have had more snow this winter in the Northeast than we've had in. I don't know. I'm making this up, but it's got to be at least six or seven years since it was this bad. Oh well. Hey, uh, Richard, let's introduce our guest. Tess Ferrandes is an escalation engineer in the ASP.NET team at Microsoft. She started debugging .NET issues when .NET was in the alpha stage and has been troubleshooting ASP.NET and other .NET issues ever since for Microsoft's external customers as well as internal product teams. She is also the author of the .NET debugging blog, If Broken It Is, Fix It You Should. Hmm. At blogs, <laughs> you like that, at blogs.msdn.com slash Tess, T-E-S-S. Welcome, Tess. Thank you. I love your Joda voice. Mm. <laughs> 800 years you are. Look as good you will not. Mm? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we've ever had an escalation engineer on the show before. So maybe we need to sort of talk about, so what is it you do exactly? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I wish I knew. Um, <laughs> well, I, I'm, in, um, I'm in second care support. So basically people call in um, to get their issues fixed or get help on their issues, most of developers. Uh, and when things get too sticky, then, then I'm there to the rescue. So you're the uh, on-call debugger, kind of. I guess you could say that. Yeah, the hired gun. So how long have you been debugging in general? Um, maybe eight years, eight, nine years. Okay, quite a lot of experience. And before .NET, were you like into the whole managed, uh, unmanaged code debugging scene and all of the wonderful stuff that entailed? Not all that much. Not to the not down to the level where I, that I'm debugging .NET issues. Yeah. Um, using our regular Visual Studio, the occasional other debugger, but but not production debugging. And do you find do you find that uh, you're using symbols a lot in Symbol Server a lot, or is that something that you only need once in a while? 
Um, for me, I use it every day. Um, basically, uh, all the all the threads and and the process are made up of both managed and non-managed code. So, I use it. I use it. Yeah, basically every day. I think as a .NET developer and and for the debugging you need to do as a .NET developer, you don't really need to use a symbol server all that much. Yeah. I mean, the managed code or the managed stacks are resolvable through through the loader heap. So when a debugger goes through and, and is going to show you the names of, of functions, it doesn't have to go to a symbol to look it up. But it can look it up on the loader heap. Okay. The, so um, uh, is Reflector your tool of choice for looking through uh, looking through assemblies and finding out what they what they tried to do? Absolutely. In fact, yeah. even even though I have source code control or a source, you know, I can, can go straight into source code. I still use Reflector to to look at our source code, and and for a customer's code, I can I don't really have access to their code, so um, for for their code, I definitely always look in Reflector. It's it's an excellent tool. It is the tool of choice, isn't it? Do you ever use it on your own stuff just to see how it interprets? Your code, I I do that once in a while, and sometimes it's not not quite what I said, what I wanted, <laughs> or what I said. Yeah, and do you develop in VB.net or in C sharp? In both. Okay, because VB.net it usually is a little bit more off mark on, hmm. and so it's like it doesn't really show the same thing as you you see normally. Like it shows a lot of go tos and things in Reflector. Yeah, yeah. And it's not like you can just compile that code and it's going to run. It's some, you know, but but it it's invaluable, especially for learning about the framework. Um, and if you don't know about Reflector, I don't know where you've been hiding out in the last few years, but you might be new to .NET. And if you don't know about Reflector, you can go to shrinkster.com slash 151i. And uh, Redgate's um, hosting Reflector now, apparently. So uh, when you use Reflector, do you use it to just look at code, or do you use it to to analyze the code and look at who's calling what function, or you know, find the callers for functions, find out who's initializing data, or who's using this particular variable? Yeah, all of those things. I tried to um, figure out what a there was a piece of software that was um, uh, failing. It wasn't. It was some commercial software, actually. I won't tell you what it was, but it was failing on a license lookup. And uh, I went in there with Reflector and checked out what they were doing and how they were figuring it out. And it turns out there was a bug in their program. But I needed to know <laughs> I needed to know where it was, so I had to trace down through the assemblies, just guessing at the function names until I found, uh, you know, until I found it. But yeah, no, I, I use it for all of those things. Um, it's especially helpful for figuring out what's going on in the framework if you're not sure uh, what's happening when you make a call to to something. You want to figure it out. Because I find a lot of people are not familiar with the analyze functions in Reflector. So tell us about that. So you right-click, do analyze, and then you get things like used by, instantiated by, all that good stuff. So you can track back exactly who's who's calling what. So if you have a, a method that's very interesting, you can go back and see who's calling it so you know kind of what path may lead you to the to the place where you're at right now. Yeah, also good for identifying potential bottlenecks too, at a glance anyway. So you post on your, on your blog quite a lot about, uh, recently, about memory leaks. And um, uh, specifically when to dispose, when not to dispose. And we haven't heard a lot about this in quite a long time. Is this still an issue for, for programmers and the code that you're looking at? I would say it's becoming less and less of an issue, but there is definitely still um, applications out there that where they don't dispose what they should. Um, but it's become less of an issue than it was, for example, in one one where where people really hadn't gotten a hang of it yet. Well, I guess, and also now there's some, the dispose is sort of built into the component classes, isn't it? 
Yeah, I think what it is, people have started using using more. Right. You know, they're using statement too. Um, also, there, you don't always have to dispose. You only have to dispose if you if you're holding like if you if the object is holding onto a native resource that you need to release. So you want to make sure that you don't end up just leaving it for the finalizer to to get rid of the object, but get rid of it as early as possible. Anything that has a handle, you say in your article. Yeah, pretty much. Or anything that has a native resource, or even right. even um, of course a connection or something like that. But and then of course the dispose method is called close instead. Right. And I I always thought that the um the file there's a couple of things that you things that use streams generally don't hold resources, and I thought that was interesting because. You know, in the Windows API, there's a whole bunch of stuff for writing to files, but I suppose that, you know, when you look at, with Reflector, you look in the framework at what's going on, it's all just native code. There's no, there's no, uh, you know, DLLs that are getting called. There's no H file, for example. Um, still, with streams, you, you should dispose or you should close. Yeah, you should the close stream. them, right, but they don't have a dispose method. Yeah, so close and dispose, like, dispose doesn't necessarily have to be called dispose. Um, you can, you can name it anything you want. Close is, is just the way of disposing a stream. Yeah. Also a socket. True. Yeah. So I was having this conversation, speaking of this, I was having this conversation with Javal Lowy, and granted it was a long time ago. It was around when .NET 2.0 was coming out. And, um, we we got on the subject of GDI objects and disposing, and he was saying that you shouldn't dispose them. <laughs> and I thought, okay. well, I thought that was the whole idea, was that, you know, these things pile up and there are a finite number of resources in the system. And I guess I was thinking at the time that there, you know, the, the more memory you have, possibly the more uh, resources are available, but I guess that's not true, is it? Yeah, I mean, when we're talking about handles and, and with GDI, it would, it would be GDI handles. Um, the number of handles is finite. It's not really a, a hard and set number, but it's still it's still finite when it comes to, like, how much desktop heat you can uh, use and, and to some extent how many handles you can have open in the process before it, it really dies. Well, and it, this gets back to how do memory leaks really ma- manifest themselves? I mean, there's a bunch of questions here, like what is a memory leak? How do I find it? How do I fix it? But how do people come to this conclusion they have a memory leak? Mm, it depends. Like some people will always think that they have a memory leak and and that's, that's their issue independently of what, they, what the symptoms are. Um, I like to think about, well, First off, in, in .NET, there isn't really such a thing as a memory leak in, in the normal sense of the word. Like, you can't lose a pointer to something. Right. What you can do is you can, you can kind of keep a handle to something, making it not garbage collectible. Um, but I think to even figure out if you have a memory leak, you have to find out what what the normal memory usage should be like if the, if the process is doing well. So... Um, establish some kind of baseline during a stress test, preferably, or are um, used to when the process is running well to either figure out if if this is high memory that you're seeing now, or if it's or if it's really normal memory usage. Right. I guess every time you ship a new version of an app, you should redo that baseline because it it yeah, changes with new applications. Unfortunately, in my there's a lot of times that we see that people are not doing stress tests, and and I guess it all comes back to uh, deadlines and and things that are more important to do than, or people that people feel are more important to do than doing tests and and measuring the wraps. And I think what you're what you're inching towards here, this is certainly something I do all the time dealing with websites, is having a picture of what your site looks like when it fails. Like what breaks first? What do you run out of? And and how does it behave? Because different sites I find behave differently under that situation. Definitely. I mean, uh, a memory leak can cause a hang, and a hang can cause 
a memory leak. So the symptoms may not always be um, reflective of what's actually going on. Right. Well, and I've had uh, I had apps where uh, the the memory leak would finally run the machine out of memory so badly it would just blue screen and restart. But Ooh. because it was a server in a wow. closet somewhere, <laughs> all they knew was the site stopped responding for a while and then it came back, mm-hmm. but all the sessions were gone. Okay. Yikes! So a restart of the process. <laughs> yeah, they, well, not just a restart of the worker process, just a restart of the whole bloody machine. So I, <laughs> okay. I think it's. Well, that yeah. would do. <laughs> but if you don't profile in the first place, you just don't know what does failure look like before it actually fails in the wild. In the wild. Very true. Yeah. So I, I've got to imagine, do people tend to come to you well prepared? I mean, like they've actually done some good benchmarking and they have those figures already? Or are they just like, yeah. I, I also got to think there's a, there's a section of the audience out there, there's a section of folks out there that not only blame, not, not only believe it's a memory leak, but it's a memory leak from a bug in the framework. Right. It's, it's not them. Um, actually, you'd be surprised at how seldom that happens. And it's like most of our customers blame their code first. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah, I mean, that's and good I, to know. I, I don't feel like it was like that. In, in the 2001-2002 fra- frame or time frame, in the early days of .NET, we blamed .NET a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did. But, yeah. Well, I, and I think that that was the the right way to think when the products were really, like when ASP.NET was really new. Now, 2L has been out forever. So chances of it having some huge issues that have uh, have not been discovered are a lot slimmer than it was in 2000 or 2001. True enough. Yeah. yeah. You, you're pretty sure you could be successful with ASP.NET 2.0. And if you can't, I'm betting it's you. <laughs> Most likely. <laughs> but uh, you asked if people were prepared. And I would say people that have worked with support before are, are usually more prepared um, than others. Um. And developers tend to be more prepared than than other types of customers we have because they they know their applications and and they don't want like developers seem to not want to call into support until it gets really really ugly and they worked on the issues for for you know three four weeks. Yeah. Yep. Possibly too long that they've have you have you found scenarios where folks have actually made the problem worse. Um, not so much, but but I think definitely a lot of times people work too long on an issue before they call us because if you're a developer, you cost such and such so and so much money per hour that you work for a company, and you need to like calculate that towards like and compare that to how much it would call it would cost to call into support, mm-hmm. and a lot of times you spend a lot of your money. You're troubleshooting things yourself. I can't remember how much a tech support call to Microsoft costs. Isn't it like $200? Uh, it depends a little bit on on if you're Your a premier customer or yeah. a pro customer, but um, I think it might be something like that for a pro, yeah. Yeah, so you got to think. And, of course, the developer's time is still being consumed when this is going on. If they're talking to you, then their time's still going on. But if... if you, Working with you cuts that time in half, and it goes from, you know, five days to three days. Boy, the price of the tech support is pretty cheap. Mm-hmm. So uh, we get back to the original issue here around memory leaks. How does one really determine that they have a memory leak? Like, wh- what's the right way to measure that and prove it? Well, I would say, um, first off, have some good perf logs that show... Um, how memory is increasing and, and if it is increasing at all. So, for example, a lot of people will call in and say, hey, it doesn't seem like the garbage collector is collecting things right or um, or something like that. And then the first thing you want to measure is in Perfmon, how does the number of bytes in all heaps, like .NET CLR memory number of bytes in all heaps, look, does that go up? In that case, you you have a .NET memory issue, or rather an issue where .NET memory goes up and up. Um, and you look at private bytes, which is basically what we've permitted, or virtual bytes, which is what we've reserved. 
and look at those numbers and see if they, in fact, do go up or if they, like, if you have a sawtooth pattern where you see things collecting, but maybe not at the rate that you're wanting it to or expecting it to. Right. So that's, that's how you start out troubleshooting it, if you have the luxury of actually reproducing the issue. Yeah, and often we, I find that the, the big memory consumption issues only happen when we have a, a live test load, the actual consumers using the site. Often mm-hmm. our tests don't show that near as well. Yeah. But even then, like Perfmon is a very cheap-to-use tool, and so, like it, doesn't have, it doesn't put a lot of impact on the server that you use it on. So. True. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I've, I've done stuff. Of course, I wear an IT hat as well when I do run as radio. And we've talked to the, uh, the premier field uh, support guys, P- premier field mm-hmm. engineers, and they're big on, on black box monitoring of servers, leaving Perfmon on round the clock so that you get instrumentation yeah. ahead of a failure. You just have to turn it down to the point where it doesn't significantly impact the server or bury your server in log files. Yeah. I mean, you can you can at least have something that will record and recycle every 24 hours, maybe. Right. Yeah, just like the black box in an airplane. It doesn't keep everything. It just keeps you. All you really care about is the hour or two leading up to the crash. Mm-hmm. Must be really difficult to find memory leaks in, when you have a 64-bit operating system with 8 gigs of RAM and, uh, you know, in the because the... Well, just because of the amount of RAM that you have, right? Um, yeah, I would say, like, on on 64-bit systems, if you do get a memory dump, they usually tend to be so big that it takes forever to go through them. So, yeah, it gets a little bit more difficult. And then, of course, um, the garbage collector doesn't run as often, so you have a lot of garbage that could be collected but isn't. Mm. Um so when you look through it, you, you have to kind of discard a lot of things to get to to the bottom of what is it that can't be collected and why. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik. And when it comes to testing web applications, usually you have two options. Do it manually, which is hard and takes forever, or use automated testing software, which is quite expensive and rarely does a good job with modern Ajax applications. And all of this is destined to change with Telerik's new automated testing solution, WebUI Test Studio, which promises to bring a new era of automated testing to the masses. The product is offered in partnership with Art of Test, the experts in quality assurance technologies. Telerik Web Test Studio is specialized for testing ASP.NET applications, especially ones with rich Ajax and client-side functionality. What's more, it's fully integrated in both Visual Studio Team Suite and Professional Edition, making it easy for developers and QA to collaborate. To top it off, the studio ships with special wrappers for the Telerik Ajax controls, which expose control-specific test actions. Web UI Test Studio is ready for the future, with Silverlight testing features coming soon. Check it out at telerik.com. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. What is it about memory leaks that, that ultimately manifest themselves? Is it that, that a big garbage collection runs and, and the machine just hangs for a long time? Like What, do, what are people complaining about? I, I can't imagine you just look at the perf and going, oh, that number's too high. we got to fix it. What's a failure look like in this scenario? Um, so on a 32-bit system, what you, what you often see is what you saw with your blue screen, but not necessarily going to the way to the blue screen. So processes crash because um, you go over kind of 800 to a gig of private bytes. Um, once you get to the point of around 800 to a gig of private bytes, you start having issues putting, um, like having large enough free blocks of memory where you could fit a new .NET segment or .NET GC segment. So if you can't find, or if you can't fit in such a segment, you'll get another memory exception, and after a while the process dies. Um, you may also run into things just without memory exceptions, like you couldn't allocate something, so you get non-reference exceptions, um, things like that. For for 64-bit, where you have a lot more memory to play with, once the once the GC finally kicks in the process hangs because it's 
way too much data to collect. Right. Um, and overall, like people, people will actually look at at memory counters and see, wow, you know, our memory is just way right. off. Right. Um, other things like um, people will have recycling at certain memory um, memory limits, and they'll see the recycling when they hit the memory limit, or or maybe they even have a limit at their ISP saying this process can use a total of 400 megabytes, and they start to go over. Yeah, do you find a lot of folks are instrumenting their app by looking at task manager and looking at how much memory that process is consuming and, and what the actual total memory consumption on the machine is? Yeah, too too many. Yeah. Um, so for, for a server app, that's not a huge deal, actually, if you look at task manager. Um, it becomes a real issue if you look at a WinForms app and, and look at how much memory it's using it from task manager because task manager will show working set, but it will show how much memory um, the process is using that's actually in RAM. Right. And when you minimize the WinForms um, form, then you'll see all the memory go away. So you'll appear to have a memory leak that only manifests itself when the window is open. <laughs> it becomes a, like it gets to be a very weird situation. Yeah, talk about difficult. Well, it just points to the fact that Perfmon is the tool for this to actually instrument properly. Yeah. Now with um, with Vista, you have a few more memory columns in in task managers that are a bit more usable, actually. So there you can see private bytes even from task from task manager. Right. You do you use the sysinternals tools as well? Oh, all the time. Yeah. Yeah, both process monitor and process explorer. Yeah. Good stuff. What what do you uh, just so folks understand, what do you use the sysinternal tools for? Um well process monitor I will use for um doing file monitoring, uh, register monitoring, so when when you get access denied for things that you think are caused by permissions issues, that's um, a perfect way, a perfect reason to use Procmon. Um, now, for a Process Explorer, you can actually go in and look at stacks of the process by, you know, right-clicking on the process, looking at the threads, and see all the way down to kernel memory or kernel stacks for the threads, which is Often, because if you need to go to the kernel, otherwise you would need to, to take a kernel dump, which is a very invasive and very difficult task. Yeah. So SysInternals really lets us do this thing, uh, do these sorts of tests without taking the machine out. Like, it can continue to operate under its load. Yeah. I'm curious how you do your job. If you if you're working with some, do you actually work with someone's production website? Are you remoted into it? Um, sometimes, not too often. Um, most of the times, um, I used to work with them, talk, like have them talk me through the issue, and then um, would generate perfmon logs, a few dumps, and, and I'll take the dumps back and look at them. I get it. So you're actually helping to coach them on how to diagnose their problem, at least gather the data, and then help them interpret it. Yeah. Well, actually, it depends on on who the customer is and how much they want to do, because, um, and it depends on how critical the situation is. Sometimes I'll just look at it and give them back the results. Sometimes people want me to actually go through and, and help them help themselves which I think is more fun, but hmm. and, and I think it's more valuable because then they don't have to come back again. Well, and I can imagine you, really you actually have a... We don't really have time for that. How often do you get, um, do you get code that's obfuscated? Um, not too often. I would say... Um, it's it's not all that often that it's the customer's code that's obfuscated. It's more third-party controls like Crystal Report um, and some other um, some other applications or some other controls that are obfuscated. Um, but 
if you have obfuscated code, it's very, very difficult. It's not impossible to look through it. Uh, have you seen the RemoteSoft tools? RemoteSoft.com, Salamander, the .NET native compiler, and they also have um, a way to port from one language to another. It's kind of Reflector-esque, but they have okay. some really, really interesting stuff there. They have a .NET so, native... Can you look at obfuscated code? Or? Um, let me see. Let me see. I haven't looked there in a long time. I know that there was a I mean, way... You shouldn't, really, like, you shouldn't really be able to because the obfuscation happens before, sort of, while you compile. So the difference between obfuscated and, right. and non-obfuscated code is really that, like, the... The compiled version doesn't have function names. Right, exactly. And, and that stuff is out things. so that there's no way that you can put it back in. So I'm sure that uh, – I don't know exactly. I don't know what he's got, but uh, he's got decompilers, and um, he does have his own protector so that you can you can obfuscate and then be able to read the code that you have obfuscated. And maybe okay, – I haven't seen it. That I yeah. can see, like, for example, if they create some kind of math. Yeah, exactly. Of how they obfuscated code. Exactly. But I haven't I haven't seen that. That's the salamander.net obfuscator. I haven't actually tried that. But the uh, native compiler is pretty interesting. Uh, so my thoughts on obfuscating is that I I don't really understand. Well, I kind of do, but I I think um, if you're if you don't really have all that sensitive code, then you should think twice about obfuscating. It's because of the issues it causes when you want to troubleshoot something. Yeah, really. I mean, the framework is not obfuscated, and people are, you know, you can't just go and compile it and, right. I don't know, just copy it out and, and do something with it. I would argue what possible scenario, or when have we ever seen a case where someone's going to use reflection to reverse engineer your application. Well, how about to hack it? I mean, if you have a, a subroutine that returns a true or false, whether or not this program will run because of something, you know, maybe you haven't paid yeah. for it. Yes, I agree. I, I think that's, that's one of the main, you know, one of the main causes. For example, if you, like you said, if you have that method or if you have something that generates um I don't know, a password or right. or whatever. That would be one. But, you know, for regular controls or for regular apps, you used to hide your code. Right. Because, like, to not have someone else steal it. I don't really see that being an issue. I, I don't really see people doing that. I might just not be in, in that game. I don't know. No. Yeah, that's true. So given that we've proven that there's actually a memory leak in this application, uh, what happens next? How do you actually find and fix a memory leak? Mm, well, so assuming that the memory leak is actually in, in .NET code, because like if it's, if it's in native, native code, um, you would use something like debug diag. Um, right. That's a, an excellent tool for, for looking at native memory leaks. And what it does is it, it really injects um, a DLL into your process that hooks on to, like it creates a detour, so it hooks on to any time you call into virtual alloc or, or heap alloc or any, anything that will allocate memory, it hooks into that, grabs the stack, and then when you deallocate that memory, it removes that stack. So it, at all points, it keeps, track of, it keeps track of what you've allocated but not deallocated. Right. And then at the end, you have a list of basically the memory that's left and who's been allocating it. With .NET memory, you can't really do that because the allocator is the garbage collector. So mm. it will allocate segments of memory, and then you use, put your objects inside that segment. Um, so for .NET memory, you would look at what's on, on the .NET heap. So you would look at all the objects that are on there, Try to kind of group them together, figure out, okay, so we've got a lot of data objects, or we've got a lot of XML objects, or too many of, you know, I got 2,000 of this one custom object that I only thought I had two of. And then from there, you go, you go about and find, find out why they're still around, so why they haven't been garbage collected. 
and that's pretty much all there is to it. Right. Yeah, it's pretty hard to have. Uh, it's pretty hard to have a leak in your own managed code, isn't it? Unless you have, um, you know, unless you are, y- you have these dispose issues. Yeah, and, and even then, it's it's not really a leak. It's it's just a matter of um, you're keeping the garbage collector from garbage collecting it, or you're you're holding on to it too long. So. The only real leak in in the .NET app is either you call into a, a COM component and it's leaking, or you have you're leaking managed assemblies. Yeah, the assemblies can't get unloaded unless the the actual app domain is unloaded. Otherwise, it's just that you're you're holding on to things and maybe you don't know that you're holding on to things. Like when you put um, when you put controls in session scope, for example. And uh, also, circular references aren't really a problem because the CLR takes care of that, right? Or the runtime. Yes. We need to talk about the evils of putting controls into session scope. I can't let that go. (laughs) It's evil. (laughs) Yeah, so so what happens there is basically you have have a control, um, let's say a data grid or or a, a list or something, a list box, um, if you put such an object in session scope, then that type of object, as soon as you put it on a page, its parent number variable points to your page. And then if you put that in session scope, you'll be holding on to that page until that object is, or until that session is ended. Right. Which means that that page and everything it holds on to and everything those objects hold on to will be around as long as your object is in session scope, which is 20 minutes or more. Yeah, depending on how they've dialed into session scope. But where this gets really grim then is when they keep generating more pages and dropping that control from the session scope into another page. You just accumulate this yeah. massive amount of memory. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and, and yeah, oddly enough, you said data grid because that control itself can be stunningly huge. Yeah. And not to mention view state. Yeah. Well, that, of course, also gets gets put into the mix there because... If you hold on to the page, you hold on to the view state. Yeah, view state persists as well. I think uh, the best one I saw yet was uh, a fellow who shall remain nameless. He used a data grid to embed 15 controls by per row with a repeater and then threw in 50 rows. And then oh. stuck that in the session object. Oh, man. Overkill. Okay. <laughs> I had a friend who had an expression called swatting a fly with a Buick. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I think that's really interesting. Sometimes you'll see these things like combo boxes with, you know, like tens of thousands of of entries. And the way you you see these problems is because they have massive use use state and they have issues with long-running pages because the bandwidth of the users is not all that great and it takes a long time to pass it back and forth. But the question you really got to ask yourself in that in that situation is, who's ever going to look through all these tens of thousands of of entries? Like, and make a choice between them. Yeah. Well, exactly. The same it's, thing it, if they if they show them in a data grid, no one's ever going to look at it. Yeah, you don't put more data in your controls than people are actually going to look at. You, you've got to keep that under control, or you just kill yourself. <laughs> exactly. Well, and I'm afraid that people get caught in traps with demo data where they've only ever experimented with this thing with 200 rows. And so it worked great there. And then they deploy it, and 100,000 rows later, they're wondering why they have problems. Mm-hmm. And they wonder what, why no one is shopping at their site anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I kind of wonder how much of this of your job is actually an exercise in psychology as well, because you said earlier developers wait too long to finally call for help. They got to be frustrated and angry by the time you they finally got on the phone with you. I, I would say not as often as you would think. Um, it's because you're not first tier support. Is that why? <laughs> well, uh, not really. I think. A lot, like, so we have two different types of support. We have um, premier support and we have professional support, where premier support is, is basically people with large contracts with us. So they already have an, 
a feeling for what support is going to be, who they're going to talk to. We already have a relationship. And so they don't, they're not usually angry. They just want help. They may be frustrated or they may be, you know, um, really eager to get help, but very seldom are they angry, I would say. But I got to think like in our, in our control in a session object scenario, that's, not a simple fix. It's going to take time for them to make the changes to make that problem go away. Yeah. Sometimes I'm really surprised by, you know, I say, okay, so make this change. Not, I think to myself, oh, man, that's going to take at least two months of, you know, change requests and this, that, and the other. And they come back the next day and they go, yeah, we fixed it. It works. Wow. And they're like, wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. All right. So why yeah, why'd you have to get all the way to me to fix that? Like what's going on? <laughs> yeah, but of course that's very different for you know, different products or whatever. But once they come to me they're usually very eager to, to fix their issue, so um their issue gets pretty high priority on the like fixing it. Right. It gets high priority once they find out what it is. Uh, so we've identified one classic ASP.memory leak, the uh, the control in the session object. Uh, any favorites you want to pull out? Um, trying to think of one that's... Oh, I love this one. Um, it's, it's kind of a memory leak, but it's kind of also a, a performance issue. So typical scenario here would be people um, put data sets in session scope because... Um, they don't want to go back to the data database all the time. Right. And then as the product grows, they realize, okay, so we need to split it up, split it up over several servers, mm. and now we need out-of-process session state, and yeah. they put out-of-process session state in SQL Server. Yeah, that's so. kind of dumb, isn't it? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I, I don't want to keep going back to SQL Server, so I'm going to go back to SQL Server. Yeah, it looked good on paper. But yeah, it's funny. I used to show then, that pattern in my class, and uh, because you know that that was the the typical example of using the the session state. You mean to put data sets in there? Or? Yeah, yeah. SQL Server has its own caching, you know, that you mm-hmm. can turn on, and you can cache the page too. You could just do an output cache yeah. for a second. Yeah. What will happen when you put session state out of process is that originally you may have only gone out to the database to look this up maybe once in a blue moon, like, for example, if the user did this specific action. Um, once you put session state out of proc, you have to go out, get the data on begin request, and save the data away on end request for every single page that has session state enabled. And when you do that... Since the data is not stored as a data set in SQL Server, you'll have to serialize and deserialize on every such operation. So you're doing that twice per page right. for every single session variable. And this is how SQL Server got a bad reputation or out-of-process session got a bad reputation. Yeah, I mean, it's good for if, if you're very frugal about what you put in a session state. It's not good for, for things that rely very much of session state. Like a data set, for example, when you serialize it, um, the memory used for serializing it may be up to 10 to 15 times as much as the actual data that's in the data set. Man. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't take very long before you're running garbage collection all the time to free those things up. Yeah. Yep. Uh, are, are you a big fan of the 64-bit? I know we talked a bit about, you know, those things get really big, but... I bet you're a fan of 8 gigs of RAM or more. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I, I don't really have an opinion, but I think you shouldn't really, you shouldn't really use it to overcome memory issues that you, that you don't know why they occur. So if you really do need to have, to have the memory, then, yeah, it's cool. If you... If you're used to doing it because you don't know what your where your leak is, then yeah, figure out where your leak is. It's not it's not so cool. Now, buying hardware is kind of cheap compared to um 
compared to fixing really crazy issues. Well, and in a way, all they're doing is delaying the worker process recycle long enough that it's acceptable. Yeah. I just, yeah, feed them more memory. <laughs> so, Tess, um, before we jump off here, we're coming down to the end. Tell us about uh, a recent application or a recent bug that you had to debug or that was kind of uh, roundabout. Like it wasn't, it, it took you a little bit of digging to go in. That might be really interesting for the listeners. Mm, I'm trying to think one that's good. I have one right now that I'm not exactly sure how to fix, actually. Um, it's not so roundabout to debug, but um, what it is 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 an issue with XML sitemaps or sitemap providers. Um, what happens is if you create an XML sitemap provider, you know the XML sitemaps where you build up the sitemap and then you can create menus based on the sitemap. So, like you can create a tree view menu mm-hmm. based on an XML file. Mm-hmm. Um, when <clears throat> when you build those, uh, what happens is internally you'll set an event handler uh, to the file monitor. So, if ever that XML file will change, then your sitemap will also change. Hmm. Uh, what happened in this case was they they were building these sitemaps on every single page, and um, it looked okay because that's what they do in the MSDN samples. Unfortunately, as they went through and, and attached the event handlers to make sure they, they got all the file share notifications, uh, they now have all these sitemap providers stuck there forever because the file monitor will be there until the process recycles. So uh-huh. that's the issue with with all those things in memory. Now, my issue is that there's no good way of of actually removing yourself from that event handler. Yeah. So I'm a bit stuck. Ooh. Um, I have an idea where you could make them static and reuse the same provider, but um, not really 100% there yet on how to fix it. Well, while you're thinking about that, I have a little, uh, uh, I'll I'll explain a problem that I had the other day, and maybe you could jump in when you finally figure it out. I'll just explain what's going on, and uh, it'll be kind of fun. pop quiz of the day? Yeah, pop quiz, exactly, debugging quiz. So um, many of our listeners, a few of our listeners probably remember a time last week, was it, Richard, when all our websites went down? Yes. Was it last week? Yeah, it was, or two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, right. And uh, so what happened was the um, data center where my ISP has our web servers, which happens to be right across the hall from the studio, which is very convenient, um, he moved all our servers to a new box. And this was going to happen on a Sunday, and Sunday became Thursday, and all of a sudden I get you know, an email that, hey, your servers are down. So uh, this happened like on a Thursday night, I think. Uh, All our servers were down, and it just happened to be the, um, the, the servers are all on a single machine. The database is all on a single machine, on another machine, the SQL server. I did figure out that it was the SQL server machine that was screwed up initially. So okay. it turned out that the SQL Server machine had to be completely uh, moved to another box, like the, the the fan wasn't moving, kind of stuff. When it when it okay. went when it shut down, it came back up. That had to be rebuilt. So that came back up, and I could get to that machine no problem. Then when the web servers came back online, uh, we were getting a, a crash on all the web server pages. It was HanselMinutes.com, .netrocks.com dnrtv.com, runasradio.com. All okay. the all the shows that use the database to display the information about uh, the shows that are that are current, and we have a uh, and I found out that it was in a call that goes and calls the store procedure that gets the most current two shows. Okay. And that was returning no- nothing. 
And so on that machine, uh, I went, I went and verified it by pulling up Query Analyzer and creating and calling the 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 procedure directly. And sure enough, it returned nothing. Okay. Did you get hit by a SQL injection by any chance? No. Oh, okay. So here's a stored proc that's returning the the two latest shows. In other words, the show that's current this week and the one that's current last week. And okay. it worked before, and now it doesn't work. And this was after rebuilding the SQL Server? Yes. Okay, but you said you you ran, a, you ran Query Analyzer on SQL Server, and it too did not return any data. Yes. Now, what we had done is we had... It is relevant. We had taken, we have these machines that are duplicates of each other. So we uh-huh. took, the, we took the, the hard drive and the RAID card for the hard drives and all that stuff out of one of them, put it in another one, and brought that one online, and it did come up online. Okay. And so... But so the database didn't contain any data. Well, no. Or it didn't, it just didn't return. I went and looked in the tables, and the data was there. Okay. So here's a clue. I looked at the store procedure, and it was a select with a where get date is less than or equal to, you know, where the the published the clock date. Was set wrong. The clock was set wrong. That's right. Oh. The system clock okay. on the new machine was like 2002, and of course oh, there were no. Oh, I see. Okay, because you rebuilt it. That's right. And and every all the guts were the same as far as we're concerned. But yeah, the system clock is different on one box wow. from another. <laughs> That's crazy, man. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Good old get date. <laughs> well, we're just about out of time, Tess. It's been a real joy talking to you and, and thank yeah, you. Yeah, it's been fun talking to you guys too. And thanks for doing what you do and in, in helping people's code to run smoother and better. And thanks for your blog. It's a great resource. Yeah, well, thank you. Okay. And we'll see you next time on God Never Rocks. Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm